Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Constance Lau, Connie Lau, the president and CEO of Hawaiian Electric Industries, the parent of Hawaiian Electric. Do I have that right, Connie? That's right. Absolutely. He do. So I guess what I say to start is aloha. <laughs> aloha to you. <laughs> Talk to us about what's new out in Hawaii. And one of, one of the things that uh, I just studied up on is that you serve 95% of the electric need of the state. That's pretty high. Is there any state that has as dominant the utility as you have out there? You know, I don't know if uh, there are any more. Of course, you know, previously, all the utilities used to be um, serving each individual state. Uh, but we're kind of it out here, serving all the islands except the island of Kauai, which is served by a co-op. So we, we have a lot to cover, and I want to start with the EVs. And uh, the three goals that I'm focused on are um, 100% renewable ground transportation by 2045, at which time you want to be fully renewable and fully carbon neutral. Do I have that right? Yeah, and actually it's for the um, state goals and not just on transportation. Um, so for generation, it is the 100% renewable generation. And then for the total economy, it's carbon neutrality by 2045. Now, on the transportation side, what's interesting is that the uh, mayors of our four counties here um, have also adopted ground transportation requirements that all of that go renewable by 2035. So that's an even more aggressive and nearer term goal on the transportation side. So what does that mean for Hawaiian Electric? What do you need to do to get ready? Uh, we have to get ready for, um, a, you know, a lot more uh, uh, provision of electricity because we'll be providing electricity not to just the normal parts of the economy, but now if transportation starts switching over to use electricity as a fuel, uh, you know, we'll be we'll have to be prepared to provide that as well. So. I guess hand in hand with this, we have to talk about how you've ramped up renewable production. How much renewable do you have today? And will it be sufficient to this transformation that we're looking at by 2035 and 2045? Yeah, so we just surpassed the goal in our state statute, a milestone that was set for 2020 which was to reach 30% renewable generation. And we were we recorded in at 35.5%. That number was a little inflated because of COVID um, and sales were down a bit. But even if we adjusted for that, we would have been at about 32%. Um, we also have uh, major renewable um, energy procurements underway. Uh, stage one and stage two, as we call them, um, that would add uh, close to another 650 megawatts of renewable energy and about three gigawatt hours of storage 
which is pretty significant when you consider that the peak on our main island of Oahu is only about 1,200. Um, so we're adding quite a bit. We already have uh, over 950 megawatts of renewable energy just coming from rooftop solar. And you can imagine um, how our uh, folks have really had to make sure that they can keep the grid stable and reliable with all that variable renewable coming. I mean, think about, you know, everybody talks about virtual power plants. Uh, well, we've got uh, you know, close to 90,000 uh, individual rooftop systems. It's about 20% of our customers. You know, on this island of Oahu, where I live, our main island, it's about 30% of folks who have single family homes. Uh, but you can't really have a virtual power plant unless you can uh, harness all the energy of uh, those systems and make it work well with the grid. What do you have in the way of um, utility scale solar versus the rooftop? Is it on par? Or is, do you have more utility scale than rooftop? How does the ratio work out? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the initial growth in renewables here actually came from rooftop systems because we had uh, very favorable net energy metering tariffs, plus uh, the state had added a very generous tax credit on top of the um, federal credit. So at times uh, when oil prices had uh, uh, spiked, um, the payback period on some of the rooftop solar systems was as low as two or three years. So it made a huge amount of sense for those homeowners who could afford it to add rooftop solar systems. The utility scale, um, and as I mentioned, we're at about 950 megawatts there. But as I mentioned, um, uh, we then, for the utility scale, uh, did um, now two major renewable energy procurements um, that are still in process. So under our stage one, we have uh, six, uh, I'm sorry, eight uh, projects that are being built currently and have been approved by the commission in stage two, another three. So a total of 11 projects ongoing. Um, six more are in the um, approval process at the commission. And then we've got a couple of self-build uh, projects going as well. I will mention that uh, we had a, a technology um, agnostic procurement. Um, so a lot of the winning bids were solar paired with storage. Uh, but in addition, there were a couple of uh, battery only um, grid scale battery projects. So, so just to recap, Connie, you have about 950 megawatts of rooftop on Oahu mm -hmm. um, and a comparable amount of utility scale in the wings. Yeah, the ones in the wings total about 600, little over 650 megawatts and three gigawatt hours of storage. Okay, just to f complete the waterfront here, does wind power play a role and is there any look to have offshore wind? We do have um, some wind. Um, I will tell you that a lot of the land, you know, it differs by island uh, because, as you know, the wind, wind turbines are a lot more noticeable within a community than a solar farm where the panels are ground level and relatively 
uh, visually, you can't really tell that they're there. And so on the island of Maui, we have quite a bit of wind. On this island of Oahu, the, uh, some of the wind projects have run into um, community resistance. Um, so uh, while you know we love wind and we'd love to have more of a renewable resource, and we can talk a little bit more about this, Marty, uh, it, you know, land use in Hawaii on small islands, uh, you know, we're seeing very interesting discussions where competing land use policies um, are needing to be discussed and, uh, you know, a judgment calls made by our policymakers. So you've got these very aggressive clean energy policies wanting renewable energy uh, which means the building of wind farms and solar farms, battery storage. And then you have land use policies uh, where we still have needs for housing. Um, even just open space is crucial in Hawaii because a lot of our water, um, you know, just comes from the rain and it collects percolating through the uh, lava rock um, to create a freshwater lens under the islands that we can tap into for fresh water. Um, you know, you also asked about offshore wind, and we've had a number of developers that um, are interested in doing that. The topography of the oceans in Hawaii is a little bit different than, you know, what uh, you might see, say, off the um, coast of New England. We don't have these large uh, continental shelves. Uh, these are volcanic islands that come almost straight up off the uh, uh, ocean floor. So it gets very, very deep, very fast. Um, frankly, now, you know, there's technology um, from the oil industry that will allow for uh, those offshore wind projects. But, it, you know, as is often the case in Hawaii, it's not about the technology it's about the siting. And if you re, you know anything about Hawaii, we are the headquarters for the Pacific Fleet. And so uh, the largest base for submarines is here. So you've got to contend with the submarines. Plus, Hawaii is a favorite place for the whales to migrate to. So, Right. So if we talk about a major commitment to be... 100% renewable by 2045. The bulk of that will be solar. Is that right? Uh, it, at the moment, it looks like that. Yes. Okay. So as you ramp up uh, electrification across Hawaii, um, what kind of challenges will that put on the grid and, and on, on your utility? Um, that's part A and part B. Uh, I'd like to just to address the vision that some car makers like Tesla have of integrating solar battery storage and car charging. Is that a part of a scenario you'd like to see develop in Hawaii? Uh, so yes to, uh, let me take that question uh, first, uh, most definitely. And that has been something that Hawaiian Electric has really been on the forefront of is uh, looking at all the technologies that they have developed to um, integrate all of these distributed energy resources, whether they're rooftop solar systems or they are uh, batteries and cars, um, to work together with the grid. 
Um, that is frankly the only way that we can optimize uh, the efficiency and the cost of delivering 100% renewable energy uh, to the, our residents here and also uh, work towards that carbon neutral economy. Um, so lots of challenges in doing that because I think, as you know, Marty, there's uh, uh, the technologies aren't always there. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we track it very closely. And uh, we were one of the first companies to work with the uh, solar companies, um, particularly the inverter manufacturers and uh, 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 NREL um, in the national lab system. Uh, to look at how inverter technology, advanced inverter technology could uh, better help um, integrate uh, the rooftop solar resources into the grid. Um, that's the same thing with the car manufacturers. Um, uh, very interestingly, Hawaii is one of those states, and I hope if there are any car manufacturers out there that are listening, um, we love EVs. There is a big demand for EVs here in the islands, but we can't necessarily always get the uh, supply of EVs. Um, you know, when we're uh, next to you know um, big California, you know that uh, has many many incentives. So, um, how many do you have on Hawaii right now? Um, you know, so it's the population here that there, there's, uh, you know, maybe about 7,000 vehicles. So, uh, there's, you know, we, we always want to have more. And, um, what changes do you have to make on your grid side, um, to accommodate all these inverters and, and knit, knit it all together? And, uh, what kind of capital investment does that require? What kind of new skill set do you need in your workforce? Um, so we have a process now, uh, IGP, called Integrated Grid Planning, uh, that is meant to be a community-wide planning process. Um, now that we have to deal with all of these uh, distributed resources, um, it's really important that um, all the voices of the many stakeholders who uh, are involved now in um, energy uh, in Hawaii um, are at the table um, and uh, that we all kind of work collaboratively up front uh, to provide um, uh, that um, plan for the future. Uh, so the IGP is the one that is uh, looking at the investments that have to go into the grid. So things like smart meters and um, sensing uh, equipment, um, and those are in our typical capital plan. Uh, you know, we tend to spend approximately 400 million in CapEx a year, um, and that includes these investments in the grid. Um, so for us, it hasn't been... Uh, a, you know, one of these uh, major uh, investments beyond um, just planning for the grid in our normal way and including all of the uh, grid modernization uh, into um, our normal planning process. We've been living through a period of, of dramatic change in, in climate. 
uh, and things like the forest fires that have come to California in the Northwest and the, the, the deep freeze that came to Texas mid-February. Um, this might seem outlandish, but hypothetical. Let's say a volcano erupts on one of your islands and uh, blocks a lot of sunlight after you've invested quite extensively in solar. Do you have contingency plans to deal with that, or what, what happens? Oh, that's an interesting one, Marty. I was going to say it's not uh, hypothetical on whether we would have a volcanic eruption um, because, you know, just a few years ago, in fact, uh, we did have a pretty major eruption uh, that uh, took out or didn't take out but isolated the geothermal plant on the Big Island um, so that we lost um, power from that plant um, and are only now just starting to get that back. Um, but we haven't really seen, uh, we, 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 we see some fog, um, you know, volcanic fog uh, um, on the Kona coast of the Big Island periodically. And sometimes that'll blow over uh, to um, some of the other islands. But, you know, we've got pretty strong trade winds here. Uh, that I think would probably, um, <laughs> I hate to say it, but disperse uh, that uh, fog. Um, that's also the reason why the uh, capacity of the wind um, farms here is so high. Um, because, you know, if you, you think about offshore wind and uh, how much more effective it is than land-based wind, but we're on these relatively small islands, you get that same kind of uh, uh, power from the winds coming across thousands of miles of the Pacific uh, uh, to turbines that are on land, um, just as you would with offshore turbines. Um, so, um, I'm going to have to think about that one, though, and maybe we'll okay. have to add that to, to our uh, contingency okay. planning. <laughs> let, let me ask you, um, has much thought been given to to the identity and the culture of Hawaii once this transformation happens to the point that when you're 100% renewable and 100% ground transport uh, EV, um, that Hawaii becomes a kind of eco-tourist destination? You know, Marty, I think we've, we frankly already are and always have been. Um, you know, this is just an amazing place. It wasn't until I traveled a lot myself that uh, someone once said to me that Hawaii was so fortunate to have not only the amazing physical beauty but also the climate um, that is quite moderate. Um, this North Pacific location, uh, you know, gives us both of those. Whereas elsewhere in the world, you might have a beautiful tropical environment, but then you'll have um, high heat and humidity or vice versa, where you have cooler weather, you don't have this incredibly lush foliage and uh, whole entire trees that look like flowers. Um, so um, I think, you know, the folks that live here have always appreciated uh, the beauty of Hawaii and um, 
when you talk about culture, uh, remember that our host culture is an indigenous culture with native Hawaiians who very much respected the land. Um, in fact, um, you know, the story goes that the first child of the Earth Mother and the Sky Father was um, stillborn and he was buried in the earth. And then when the ch second child was born, uh, he was fed off the body of the first child uh, that became the taro plant um, or, you know, which is the staple here. It's kind of like potato. Um, and so, you know, uh, in our culture, we tend to, to really respect the land as kin as opposed to a thing. Um, it's very much, you know, uh, uh, living. Um, and so, I, you know, I think we have always been a place for ecotourism uh, and this whole uh, commitment of our entire community towards carbon neutrality and 100% renewable is um, just a continuation of that. Connie, I, I'd like for the last area of discussion, I'd like to switch gears slightly or not, maybe not so slightly. Since 2012, you've chaired the National Infrastructure Advisory Council advising the president on security issues affecting a lot of, of our economy, including energy, of course, and you've been on the electricity subsector coordinating council. This move that you're making in Hawaii to renewables and carbon neutrality and incre increased electrification is there an element of increased grid security that you see coming along with it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Marty, I will say that from the time I joined the council, so uh, one of the biggest issues that we've talked about for all critical infrastructure is cybersecurity. And think about the grid that now has to integrate so many more distributed resources. Uh, you know, you're basically increasing the potential attack surface. Uh, so we are very, very focused on security issues um, and resilience issues for the grid. Um, you know, I mentioned that uh, the Pacific Fleet is headquartered here, but also the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command that watches 52% of the world's surface, um, including uh, major uh, countries like China and North Korea. So we are very, very focused on those security issues, and it goes beyond just making sure that the grid is reliable um, to making sure that it is very secure and resilient. Um, so big focus for us. So a, distri a distributed grid, you think, inherently is harder to penetrate or bring down, but also opens up more points for attack? Yeah, I think it's, it, it's probably uh, more. It's that latter point. There are you know, more opportunities for penetration. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, you know, frankly, nowadays, originally everybody used to talk about pen tests, right? Now you just assume uh, that, uh, you know, you will be breached somewhere. So I shouldn't use that technical term, but that, uh, you know, people are pinging us all the time. Uh, and you just have to have um, extremely active 
um, services and and personnel that are constantly watching the grid um, and uh, hone your ability to shut down problems as quickly as possible. I, you know, I really have to commend our industry, which is oftentimes held up as a model for other um, infrastructure um, sectors uh, because we are so collaborative. And so under the uh, Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, there's the uh, the CMAG, the Cybersecurity Mutual Assistance Group, just as we get together in mutual assistance for physical disasters like hurricane assistance. Uh, we also do that on the cybersecurity side. Um, and the EISAC, um, uh, the Electricity Information Sharing and Analysis Center, uh, it really has become the go-to point, uh, continually interfacing with the intelligence services and government agencies to uh, make sure that all of our uh, te technology professionals are aware of anything that's happening to any utility across the United States. Uh, so that we can share that information and share the mitigations. Um, and, you know, that's uh, frankly something that is a huge focus of the industry. Um, and, you know, we continue to look for ways to uh, build those partnerships. Um, you know, cybersecurity for our industry isn't like some other uh, sector where the primary reason might be a financial crime. Um, you know, for our sector, it really might be to take down uh, the economy, so to speak, or take down the country. So uh, we are up against nation states um, with with uh, lots of resources and capabilities. So it's very important that we all work very collaboratively. Um, and it's great to have a strong um, risk management agency like the uh, Department of um, Energy uh, as a partner um, for our industry. And also Department of Homeland Security. I mean, really I'd, I'd say through the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, you know, all the federal agencies led by DOE and DHS uh, are, um, you know, come to the table to work on these issues together. You've been at Hawaiian Electric since 1984, so you must have started when you were 10 years old. <laughs> 36 years, um, what has been the single most um, important change, do you think, in that time frame? Well, I mean, it, within that time frame, we really did change from regulated monopolies that were vertically integrated to uh, really being at the center of an energy ecosystem um, for our communities. Um, you know, it, uh, before, you know, the regulated utility kind of provided it all for all of the citizens um, that they served. Um, now there are so many other players, including the independent power uh, producers, uh, the aggregators, the energy service companies, um, the tech companies, uh, that uh, we have to, I, th I think we still have, well, I know we have the central role because we have the grid. We have that central role uh, and we have a leading role. 
Um, and it's really important for us to make sure that all of these other players also come together uh, collaboratively. The one thing that hasn't changed is that I think folks who work for regulated utilities really, you know, we realize that uh, in many ways we're kind of quasi-public and we have a really important role to make sure that we, you know, keep distributing and keep providing the electricity that keeps our communities in the country running. Um, And so we have this much more collaborative mindset, all those mutual assistance groups that I talked about. And that mindset is something that we have to also impose on everyone, all those other newer players that now are part of this whole energy ecosystem that has to ensure that we deliver, you know, clean, reliable, resilient power um, to our communities. Great. Thank you, Connie. Okay. Well, thank you, Marty. Always a pleasure. Likewise. We've been talking to Connie Lau, who's the president and CEO of Hawaii Electric Industries. Uh, and she's been sharing her insights about changes to the industry out in Hawaii and across the country. You have been listening to Grid Talk. You can send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrl.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating on your favorite podcast platform. For more information or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.